Yeah, it's the Casimir Engine Show podcast. Switching down knobs that are wrong already. You're listening to the Cat Cat Casimir. That's me. Cat Cat Cat. Hasn't that been done yet? You think so? Casimir engine. It's the Casimir engine. It's not Kakaka. We were starting off how we mean to go on. This is Stir Fry Popstar. Herbie's with me. He's nibbling me toes. Pretending it's a biscuit. You're listening to the Casimir Engine. It's a special show tonight. That's a fantastic stir-fry pop star. Ah. Mm. 
Warabanga. One, two, three, four. Uh, so it's a bit of a different show tonight. I've got an interview. And the interview is... Um, it's about an hour long. But in between, we've got live music from Frank Powers, who performed at Designate at the Gate on Smedley Street in Matlock. Um, Frank Powers is from Sweden. Uh, Sweden. What? Switzerland. Switzerland. Hey, they're not in Brexit. They're not in Europe either, are they? Are they? I don't know whether they are or not. Hey, getting all political there, Kaz. Um, But yeah, he came over from Switzerland. I'll take the Sweden bit out in the edit. And he played uh, a beautiful gig up at the gate. uh, And I recorded it. I don't know whether that's legal or not. I did ask him. He said it was okay. So we've got um, a a lady called Helen Moat will be joining us um, after the next track. And um, she's an author, ex-teacher. So she'll be telling us about um, some of the stuff that she's writing. And she'll also be telling us about growing up in Northern Ireland in the 70s and 80s. Interesting stuff. Thank you very much, Helen, for joining us. So really... We've got time for just one more track. Um, I'm going to be playing Richie Tyler with Reaching because he's going to be coming out with some new Marigold stuff that I'm dying to get me mitts on. So pull your finger out, Richie Tyler. In the meantime, we'll have to pull up with this. It's a classic. You'll be whistling this all day. As soon as you download this, you'll be whistling it. You listen to the Casimir Engine Show podcast.
on her herbies decided to start barking. Richie Tyler's set him off. Right, we're going to meet Helen Moat. Shall we dive straight into it? Okay. Are you sure you're ready? I think so. <laughs> I'm no Jeremy Paxman, don't worry. I'm no, I'm no Jeremy Paxman. I'm no interviewee. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, um, well, thank you very much for joining us on the Casimir Engine Show podcast. Um, what do we introduce you as? Helen Moat author or Helen Moat... Um, ex-teacher or you are are you are you not teaching anymore take it i haven't been teaching for quite a few years now so i think do you know at first i felt really self-conscious about calling myself a writer and i thought i'm not a writer and then i thought well actually i am and i'm jolly well going to call myself a writer so let's go with that hello writer yeah i'll go with that it sounds good anyway. <laughs> it sounds fantastic. It sounds fantastic. Um, okay, Koki, um, I can tell by your accent, and I think a few of the listeners will tell by your accent, that you're not from, uh, well, you're not from Derbyshire. You've lived here for a long time. But um, whereabouts are you originally from? Okay, I'm originally from, from Northern Ireland. It's really strange because when I go back to Northern Ireland, which isn't very often, people say to me, Oh, you've got an English accent. Are you from England? But when I'm over here, I've had people say to me, you've got a really strong Irish accent. Yeah. So it's all in the ear, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, so, yeah. It's amazing, though, because um, I, I, I never think that um, I've got an accent. But yeah. I, I feel that, and then you meet somebody and they say, God, crikey, you've got such a local accent. And I don't feel that I have. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, you don't hear your own accent. I know, it's weird, isn't it? Um, you, you, where, sorry, whereabouts were you, were you born? So I was born in a little town that's called Lurgan, and usually people say to me, oh, I've never heard of Lurgan, not surprisingly. There's nothing very special about it, except that it, was the most, it had the most bombed railway station during the travels. So that's about as famous as Lurgan is. <laughs> the most bombed <laughs> railway station. That's correct. Yeah. Where where is it? Where is it? Where is it near? Is it anywhere? In, is it near? Is it near to Belfast or? Yeah, it's about twenty miles from Belfast, so not far at all. The best way to describe it is it sits at the very bottom of Loch Ness. Yeah. I don't know Loch Ness. Should I know Loch Ness? Loch Ness, the big, big, big lake in... It takes a big chunk out of Northern Ireland, actually. Right. It's the biggest um, freshwater uh, lake, because that's what it is, uh, in the UK, I think. I'm yeah. correct in saying that. If it's wrong, someone will get in touch with you and say that's rubbish. Which <laughs> 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 it could be. <laughs> So did you did you spend a lot of time in Belfast as a as a as a youngster or? Uh, before, not a huge amount. I think when the trouble started. So I was born in nineteen sixty one. So everybody can work out my age now. We can now. <laughs> the trouble started in nineteen sixty nine, and. Um, once the trouble started, I think people who weren't from Belfast were a little bit afraid to go there. And it, 
definitely had an atmosphere if you wanted to go shopping um, you had to go through the terror pins and be properly searched, your bags, everything. And after that, you were searched in each and every shop that you went into. So, and you know, a lot of the big businesses in on the mainland wouldn't invest in Belfast Centre at the time. And uh, so it did have an atmosphere. It was quite subdued. I never experienced anything there. But the really funny thing is that people who lived in Derry or London Derry, they wouldn't go to Belfast because they said it was too scary. And people in Belfast wouldn't go to Derry because oh, wow. it was too scary. <laughs> so, you know, what you know. <laughs> so with it, with it being the, 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 the big companies in, in, in England then, not, not investing in, in Belfast, was, were there plenty of local businesses over there then? Did you have local um, companies? Yeah, I guess I think there were, there were shops, but, uh, you know, it was quite soul-destroying because, you know, a lot of these shops were bombed, some of them more than once. I mean, I told Tom a story today that he didn't know him and my son Patrick and said, I remember in Lurgan, uh, because Patrick said to me, did you ever experience a bomb? And I said, well, I never walked past a place that was bombed, but I heard them, even though I lived on the very end, I would often hear the explosions going off. And the story I told Patrick today was, I remember I bought a coat for next to nothing from a shop that had been bombed because it was bomb soiled. No way! (laughs) It didn't actually have any holes in it or damage, but it actually smelt of smoke. So I got it really, really cheaply, and I really liked this red corduroy coat I had at the time. It was very 80s, early 80s. But yeah, I got this really cheap coat because of the bomb that had gone off in the shop. It was very sad, you know, to see all these businesses you know, they would sort of be bombed and then they'd have to start again. And if they were really unlucky, they'd be bombed again. Yeah. Was it was it scary to live in, in Northern Ireland during the time? Or did people just get on with life? I suppose nobody knew really any different, did they? There is that element. And you have to remember that the experience was very different for different people. I mean, if you were a working class person in Belfast, for example, you lived in the Falls Road or Shankill or whatever, if you lived in those really working class places where, you know, the terrorists operated from, really, it was a scary experience for everybody on either side of the division. I lived in a little sleepy town. My own personal family were not involved in politics. They weren't in the police, my immediate family, or in the army. So for me, it really wasn't scary. Um, I mean... Were Were you segregated from... I'm not, don't, let's not go down the religious route, but, um, we, 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 was, was Lurgan a segregated, uh, community? Did you, did you mix with Catholic and Protestant kids? Yeah, very much so. Um, I, I mean, it's probably Lurgan, maybe one of the more extreme examples. So, uh, when, before the trouble started, there was a little bit of the mixing of communities. But once the trouble started, there was, to some, I mean, in some of the housing estates, people were threatened on both sides yeah. of the communities and had to leave. And there was a sort of self-regulated partition, if you like. So Lergan had a, a main street in the middle uh, where the shop, shops were. Yeah. And then you had 
really the Catholic community living at one end, basically, and the Protestant community living at the other end. Um, I mean, I said I wasn't, uh, my family weren't involved in politics, but my next door neighbour was a policeman. Uh, he moved away, and but shortly after that, um, he was still working as a policeman in Lurgan. And during the troubles, there was a gate at either side, at either end, rather, of the main street, the shopping area. And for some reason, it doesn't seem like a good idea in retrospect, And um, the police opened the gates every day at the same time because the, the town centre was virtually shut off during the night. Mm. And they closed them again at the same time at the end of every day. And my next-door neighbour was opening the gates one morning. He was shot dead by the IRA. You know, it was really quite tragic. He mm. left the um, teenage sons. And, of course, there were tragic stories on either side of, of the community. So there was a, a lot of pain at the time, of yeah. course, you know, people losing family and friends. So, you know, the peace process, for me personally, was a wonderful thing.
It made it an exciting place culturally. It, did it affect you musically? Yeah, there was a there was an extra complication in that I grew up in the Plymouth Brethren. Oh yeah. So I really culturally <laughs> had a very limited experience anyway. Um, you know, it was quite um, quite a strict kind of church. I wouldn't call it a sect, but it was very very strict. So really, um, the Plymouth Brethren are very suspicious of the the outside world, if you like. Yeah. Um, my parents weren't as strict as some parents, uh, but you know, I did have a fairly limited experience of culture in Northern Ireland when I was growing up. What I was going to say to you was, I went away and lived in Switzerland for a year. Oh wow! Mid eighties, and then I came. Um, I went back to Northern Ireland for a year and the troubles were still very much going on then. And then I came to England to study. I went back after quite a long time to Belfast. I hadn't gone to Belfast. And when I went, I felt incredibly emotional because I talked to you about the the shops and, and, and how you have to be searched and there was an atmosphere. It was quite subdued. There was a kind, it wasn't exactly open fear but there was you know you were very vigilant and when I went back to Belfast it had been regenerated the the, the centre was really buzzing businesses were being investigated in again and it was really quite emotional going back to Belfast after all those years after the troubles had come to an end and when when was this then so you were in the you were in Switzerland in the 80s so it was the mid-80s I was in Switzerland, and I suppose I did go back to study. I left school when I did my GCSEs, and then I went back and did an access course in Derry in the middle of the Troubles, which was quite scary at times. Um, and, you know, I did get caught up once or twice, actually, um, in sort of, like, uh, skirmishes with, with uh, groups, you know, on, yeah. on both sides of the community where bottles were being thrown and there was a lot of anger at the army in Derry particularly. I was on not on the water side, on the bog side. So, you know, that and I brought some friends over who were English to visit. They came over to visit me and they were absolutely petrified <laughs> because all the shops were closed at night and shuttered and, you know, it was really dead. And then they said, oh, we find it really scary. And then by the end of the week, they were taking photographs of the police, you know, and they yeah. had the jeeps with, you know, they had netting right down yeah. to the ground so that, you know, nobody could throw um, bottles, uh, bombs or anything like that under the wheels. And they were taking photographs at the end. And I said, you've gone from the sublime to the ridiculous. <laughs> you were really scared and you're right. And now you're taking pictures of the army. Maybe not a good idea. Yeah, now it's a tourist destination. You know, it, was, it became a tourist ex- uh, destination. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but, and I'd love to go back to Derry because I haven't been there since they built the, the, the Peace Bridge and yeah. I'd really love to go back and see what it's like. Yeah. So, um, here we go with the team. 
But I've actually uh, written on that last journey I did. Um, uh, but actually, there's a video in the internet um, where I've climbed the walls of the castle up there. And I almost got beaten up. <laughs> um, I was really lucky. Guy almost like ran me over with his truck because he felt it's not good to get in. And I, yeah, I knew I was not supposed to be in. But, um, yeah, this tune came out called Free Moves. And as it's free moves, it's free moves. <laughs> <coughs> took you to Switzerland? Um, so, um, 1985, I went there. I had lived at home all my life. I'd found a job. I started off as a library assistant. 
And I was living in this very conservative little town. There wasn't a lot happening. And I thought, I need to get away and see a bit of the world. So I went off to Switzerland to be an au pair. Wow. A thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I went back again later. Yeah. In, in the, in, uh, whereabouts in Switzerland? So the first time I was there, I lived on what they called the Gold Coast, just outside Zurich. Yeah. I worked for this very wealthy lady, she was very nice, who had been married, was divorced from um, the family from who owned the biggest private bank in Switzerland. So you can imagine just how wealthy she was. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. She had this beautiful house in the mountains and uh, spent whole winter skiing and cross-country skiing. So it was really a nice time. And then I went back again when I, I did a degree in German eventually in Southampton. That's where I met my husband, Tom. And I went back for another year um, to work in a school as a language assistant. So that was in a place called Winterthur near the, the uh, Zurich airport. So that was really nice as well oh, yeah. and 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 then the, the, you became you you went into teaching uh, yeah so I did my degree in German and then I thought what shall I do now so I ended up doing a PGCE and went into primary school teaching yeah. and did that for about 12 years okay and we were you uh, when we're talking you're in Matlock I'm in Matlock yeah. Um, but um, were, were you, did you first go into teaching over in, in Matlock or were you elsewhere in the country? So at the beginning of my married life, uh, my husband Tom and I, we were in um, in Peterborough. Okay. In Cambridgeshire. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, so I started my teaching career there in a place called Huntington. And then when we came up, I had, a, like I had my children, had a break from teaching. Then I came up here. And I taught um, first at Castleview for a short-term contract because I'd been out of teaching for a while. And then I taught in Grindelwald for a good few years. Okay. And then I ended up uh, in Drawnfield for another number of years. So. Oh, right. Yeah. As soon as I got into writing songs, I never really cared what language it's going to be. Um, and so that's why I'll switch language and go into German. Um, this is a song called... It's a love song, I guess. Yeah. In terms of, uh, sometimes we, we kind of have that imagination that it's that there's levels between people. And so there might be a person that you find really flirting, but you feel like it's probably not going to work because it's like another kind of thing, right? And, um, well, it's, that song's about to break this illusion. <laughs> Selbstsicherheit ist eine falsche Tugend. Du weißt nichts. Von dem, was ich weiß, stelle ich mir Gespräche vor. Bevor du mich sehen willst, haben meine Pläne wieder geliebt. Also bis Pläne unter Liebe gibt. Ja, mit dir würde ich jedoch Yeah. 
Äpfel essen und protestieren. Flaschen entsorgen und sich selber recyceln. Und Kuss auf den Mund und dann darf Pfanne laufen. Wenn ich dein Schatten wär, drückte der Schein an den Geblendeten.
you retired now? Uh, well, you retired from teaching. I'm retired from teaching. You're doing yeah. loads of stuff, including playing the ukulele. Somebody tells me that you're playing the ukulele now. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a great thing that started off um, at Designate, organised by Emma and Ian, yeah. uh, from who are very involved with the community at Designate, live in Smedley Street. So they had a couple of friends there doing a workshop for a weekend last year, this time last year, roughly. Yeah. And I couldn't, I hadn't picked up uh, a ukulele in my life before. So it's a wonderful little instrument to learn because you can pick it up quite quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've had a ukulele on top of the wardrobe for about five yeah. years and I still can't play anything on it at all. How long have you been playing ukulele? So it's yeah, pretty much a year. Yeah. So we went from this group of people who couldn't play at all to, uh, well, uh, one concert I didn't do, a little concert in the park in Matlock and the other one up at Designated the Gate. Yeah. So, yeah, we feel quite chuffed with ourselves. We may not be the ukulele orchestra of Great Britain. But, but you're, you're more of Smedley Street. <laughs> Let's get on to your writing career. Now, mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the reasons uh, I wanted to, to have a chat with you was about Slow Derbyshire. Tell me all uh, about Slow Peak District. Sorry, Slow Peak District. Do apologise. Yeah. Tell, tell me about your idea for that. Uh, so, really, the series is not my idea as such. Um, there's a publishing company called Brat, B R A D T, and they are not as well known a guidebook company as say, the Lonely Planet or the Rough Guides. But they are really good at sort of sussing out up-and-coming destinations. So they usually are the first to write about a sort of an emerging destination. But they've also done this lovely series of slow guides, which are UK-based. Okay. Um, so which really go from uh, Dumfries and Galloway, so I think that's the only Scottish one, all the way through to Cornwall. Yeah. And... Um, when I was teaching, I started entering travel writing competitions. I'd really, I loved writing at school, but I'd kind of stopped doing it completely. And then I started writing the diary with the boys when we were on holidays abroad. Yeah. Um, and so we all kept a diary. And then I published one on an American website. And a friend, a German friend of mine said, oh, I really like that. You should do more writing. So I started entering competitions and had a little bit of success to my surprise. And I thought, oh, Maybe I can do this a little bit. And it very quickly became almost an obsession, really. So that's how it started. And after winning some of these competitions or being placed in them, I pitched to Brat and said, oh, you don't have a slow guide. I can talk about that a little bit in a minute, what that means. But you don't have a slow guide to the Peak District. Um, Would you like me to write you one? And I pitched my ideas and they came back and said, yeah, we like your ideas. Would you do it? And I was really amazed because I wasn't a a professional writer and I'd never written a book before. Um, And I'd heard that people who write guidebooks usually start off doing chapters before they are let loose in a whole book. So I was kind of really delighted. And then I thought, 
help. What have I done? Because I've written, you know, little pieces, 500,000 words long, and suddenly I was being asked to write eighty-five to 90,000 words. No way. That's quite a leap, isn't it? <laughs> it's quite a leap. And so I was, I was really thinking, help, this is crazy. What have I done? And then, you know, I just made some spreadsheets and, you know, organized my time to research and write. And then uh, when I didn't keep my own deadlines and I did another <laughs> spreadsheet and so on until the book got uh, written. So, yeah, it was really, it was good fun. And uh, I I know you're really passionate about the area and the Peak District and we're so, and Derbyshire in general, mm. and we're so lucky to live here, aren't we? Um, this next two are, is are my latest note. Like the EP came out a year ago, and it's called Dance Alone. Bound to do something. Thank you. 
But I think oh. I'm going to be envious of of what in, what uh, a slow peak district involves. What do you have to do to? <laughs> It's a good question. So I think most people have heard about the slow cookery movement yeah. where it's all about, you know, buying fresh product in season, not eating fast food, taking your time, getting the best flavours from a meal. And I think that's really what slow travel is about all the time. I mean, my book never asks, encourages people to go to the chains. Yeah. It's really about supporting local businesses, going to those little family-run places. Um, you know, it does talk about the big attractions like Chatsworth. They're wonderful places, but also very much talks about those little places that people haven't heard of. So, for example, one of my favourites is um, at Yulegrave by uh, Middleton by Yulegrave. Um, the parish there with Smeral decided to do this project for the new millennium they called the sites of meaning and all around the the boundary of the the of the parish they carved uh, stones and put on them uh, words of famous poems yeah. or words of wisdom uh, they even got local people from the local aggregates company to write poetry our children in schools and you can get a map you can download it or, uh, from online if you just google sites of meaning take this map and it's like a literary treasure hunt and you can just go all around the boundary some beautiful areas for example through Bradford Dale and hunt out all these carved stones and sometimes not uh, especially carved it might be in a dry stone wall or it might be on a field uh, fence post you know anywhere where there's stone really or clapboard bridge yeah um so yeah I went, really I, w- I was reading your website which is mm-hmm. helen dot moat at wordpress am i anywhere near that yeah that's me i guess yeah i read yeah. A, 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 a fabulous article about one of my favorite walks in the area which was along mm-hmm. bradford dale and yeah. I, saw, I saw one of the pictures was of, of um, there's a at the, at the uh, Middleton by Yulgrave end of the walk. We're getting a bit local for our yeah. international listeners, but at the end of the walk, there's a, <laughs> there's a beautiful, there's a dry stone wall. We have wall. to come, don't we? I know, that's the whole idea. This is like an advert to come to Derbyshire, <laughs> isn't it? Um, but yeah. at, at the end of the walk, there's uh, a dry stone wall and it has books in the dry stone wall. I didn't know what it was, what it was yeah. all about until yeah. I read your website. So we've got yeah. to direct And that's exactly people. it. That's the sites of meaning. Gotcha. Okay. And you can download that yeah. as, a, as a map. Yeah. So if you Google sites of meaning, it should come up. Okay. And there's a little map on there um, that shows you where they all are. It's a very basic map. So a people want to do it i definitely recommend they take an os map as well yeah and um, because it is quite a simple map but they also list each and every one i think there are 17 if i remember correctly okay um and you can go and go around the whole boundary and it takes you through some lovely parts of the white peak but- so and, and to some historical places as well so it goes sort of goes past arbor low the yeah. the um stone circle and um, it goes through a roman road that's no longer visible but you can see 
from the, the you know the way the land lies that the road was once there oh, so it's wow. really interesting in terms of local history as well but the one thing i liked about your website was that you mentioned the guy who used to collect the trabants um at yeah. one, one end of the walk there's a there's a guy who used to have a field full of Trabant. Unfortunately, yeah. I had to get rid of them all. He had so many complaints, apparently. Um, yeah, I wondered about that, so yeah. he had to move them. He's just got one left. Yeah. Oh, that's a one shame. I love them. It's, a, it's an estate. I'd love it. If he's listening to this, um, I'd, yeah. I'd love that car. But it's blue at the back and it's orange at the front. So I think it's two. Tra- <laughs> I think it was once two Trabants that have suddenly become one Trabant. So, but the yeah. wild, the wildlife down there, it's an incredible, incredible place. I love it to bits. So it was really yeah. interesting reading your your article. What is what's your website again? Yeah. Well, my website, I think I have two, actually. Um, there's Slow Peak District and there's Slow Travel Beyond. I have to confess um, that now I'm doing more professional writing. I write for Country File, BBC Country File. I, I, I write for Wanderlust Blog and for Derbyshire Life. And because I'm getting more and more commissions, I do less on my website. Now and again, I think I really should post something, you know, it's getting a ridiculously long time now. So I really need to go back to it. It can yeah. be a bit of a chore, can't it? I'm, I'm rubbish yeah. at updating this website. I'm, I'm terrible at it. Yeah. So yeah. you've got, you've got um, the, the, the slow movement. So you, you're writing with that and you say you're writing for Country File. Yeah, I, I was really lucky in that I, it's really hard to get into travel writing these days. I probably left it for about 30 years too long. But, you know, I had a lucky break. Um, first of all, I wrote in the community website for Wanderlust, the glossy travel uh, write, uh, magazine. And then, um, yeah, I, I was invited to blog for them. And so they have invited me to write for their website. Uh, and then with the Brat book, which was a result of writing the writing competition, which I didn't win, but, you know, came high enough up that they asked me to write for one of their books. And that got me into writing a guide for them. And then I think Country Fire really like nature writers and brat writers. Yeah. So they invited me to be a member of their team on their great days out. So, um, and that 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 was that's really exciting. They're brilliant to work for. They're such a nice bunch of people. And do you, working there. do you get to just so eat great. lots and lots of cake? <laughs> uh, so I wrote a, an article for BBC Worldwide, and um, because in the summer I had a cycling holiday. Uh, with our good ukulele friends, Ian Campbell and Emma Crawley, uh, Crawley even. And um, I was, I just wrote to the tourist board and said, oh, have you got anything unusual that I can write about and hopefully pitch to someone? And they told me about this great story when the Germans, or uh, the Prussians, uh, occupied uh, southern Denmark, as it is today. They told them they couldn't... Um, sing nationalistic songs, and they couldn't have alcohol in their village halls. So the Danish thought, well, if we can't have our punch, we're going to make the best cakes. And then it got really competitive with the housewives, and the, the cake tables just got longer and longer and more, you know, fantastic cakes. So this uh, restaurant in the southern town 
up Jackland. They invited us along and they had like it's a whole systematic thing of seven hard cakes, which I think are biscuits, really, seven soft cakes and seven layered cakes. And we just ate our way through all these many, many cakes. <laughs> it was the best commission I've ever had. Oh, that's a dream. <laughs> and I got paid for it as well. <laughs> That's incredible. So coming from Lurgan to writing about yeah. cake is a just, is, <laughs> what a career, what a career. Okay. 
so, so what, what's what's for the future then? So the future is I'm uh, I'm just going to keep plugging with the writing. Um, I've got to write the second edition of the guidebook, so I've started working on that. I wrote, I cycled to Istanbul in 2015, yeah, I think. Yeah. And I wrote a book, and I had an agent, and. She kind of pulled out in the last minute, which was quite heartbreaking. Um, but I'm not going to give up. I'm going to see if I can find another agent. So that's my target for this year. And then I thought, after I received this letter from her, instead of saying I'm going to give up on this writing, I said, right, I'm going to write a novel. So I started writing a novel. No way. Is it a rom-com or is it, is it, what, is it a murder mystery or...? It's magic realism, which I love. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of set in Northern Ireland, but it is, uh, the main, this mysterious character seems to come from the Arctic Circle. Oh, wow. So, so yeah, and the whole thing, premise of the book is that the mist, uh, you know, she's trying to persuade the reader that the book is called My Re- A Real Imaginary Friend, and she's trying to persuade the reader that she's real, but all the indication is that she's made her up. Fantastic. So, but I have, a, I have a, I think, a good ending for it, because endings are always really hard. With oh, novels. yeah, if you can start with an ending, you're nearly there, aren't you? That's the best thing. <laughs> yeah. who, who... I think the hard thing about a good novel is you need to have a really strong narrative drive, and that's the tricky bit, keeping yeah. up the momentum. Yeah. And keeping up the reader's curiosity. Do do you sit on a Monday morning at um, eight o'clock or nine o'clock and then work through till five, or do you just pick up the computer when you need it? Or I'd really like to tell you I do. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I kind of I try to have some shape in my day, and I do. You know, I. Sometimes when I'm going a little bit astray, I write myself a list then, and that kind of get me, gets me back on track. Yeah. So you know, and it's not it's not only the writing that's time consuming; it's the pitching as well, and that can be quite soul destroying because you don't know if your pitch is going to be accepted, and quite a lot of editors don't even bother replying. Yeah. And that's the reality. And then you've got this additional thing these days: is that print is dying, and I think. It's not that people will stop reading. It's back to, you know, online again. And So, yeah, so long as I go on a holiday with a bookshop, a cake shop and a coffee shop, I'm fine. <laughs> and probably, You're my kind of man. <laughs> and probably a pub on the end of it or something like that. But um, I'd rather have a yeah. bookshop, I think. I'd rather a bookshop. Yeah. I think we're lucky because we've got Scarvins. I don't know whether you spend any time oh, in. What a fabulous it's place. Wonderful. I've got quite a few German, Swiss, Austrian friends, and I always take them there because you won't find anything like that in mainland Europe. It's so English, and it's English in a lovely, lovely way. It could almost have been on Harry Potter in Diagon Diagon Alley, shouldn't it? It was. It's an incredible place, and the food we we ate there the other day, and the food is just fabulous. It really is fabulous. Mm. So, Mm -hmm. uh, um, hopefully, we'll be able to see your novel in there in the future i hope so it might always just sit on my laptop but you know you just have to try it's it's hard but you just have happen the only thing i can do is write the best possible novel that i can and take it from there and then this weekend we've got one of your swiss friends appearing at designate at the gate we've got yeah dino 
Dino, who goes by the stage name of Frank Powers. So, um, you know, when um, when I was a... Yeah, I, I love this Northern Irish musician called Duke Special, who most people have never heard of. Uh, he's brilliant live. Um, and so I went to see him in Switzerland. Okay. And uh, I, I went to this little town that nobody knows. I mean, I'd gone past it in the train. But it's a bit like Lurk in the kind of place nobody really stops to look at. And there's this wonderful old salt house there. And there's a guy who is absolutely passionate about music. He's a musician himself, who seems to track down all these brilliant, brilliant musicians and gets them there. So he got two Northern Irish artists out, uh, Duke Special, and another guy called Roy Vance, um, indie artists that most people haven't heard of, were brilliant musicians. So I went out there and had a great time, and they were really amazed. All these British people, fans, had gone out to this little place, this little town. And uh, as a result, I befriended him on Facebook, and he posted something from Dino, and I thought, I really like that. And then I sort of looked on his website, and he just happened to say, I'm re- really keen to go to Europe. He has a band, but he just wanted to travel around and do a few gigs. And he went to Designate. He also went to the Bali and Bonsals. He did two gigs. But to my surprise, this was about two years ago, to my surprise, a few weeks ago, he messaged me and he said, I'm coming back to England, and I really would love to go back to Matlock. And specifically designate because I really loved it there. So he sang in front of the fire, you know, with all the fire crackling, and it was just so atmospheric, atmospheric up there. So um, yeah, it was really magical evening. So that's tomorrow night, and there are hardly any tickets left. I think there's about half a dozen left. Uh, So yeah, if anybody's interested, you need to. Get there early and get yourself a ticket. Well, we'll, we'll post we'll post up on the on the Facebook page and get it out on Twitter. See if we can make it a sellout. But so yeah, um, travel writer, future mm. novelist, I e- hope ex teacher, <laughs> long distance cyclist, and and now um, uh, musical impresario. I can't even say it. I can't even say it. Hello, <laughs> me neither. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the Casimir Engine Show podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, just to finish off, I know that writing's a passion for me, yeah. but I know that DJing is a passion for you, so keep up the good work, and thank you for having me on here. I'll try my very best. I'll try. <laughs> That's what people say. You're very trying, Casimir. So I <laughs> now, and I look forward to seeing you tomorrow night. Yeah, I'll see you up there. Thank you very much indeed. That was the wonderful Helen Moe. If you're interested in uh, checking out some of Helen's work, you can find her on www.helenmoatsite.wordpress.com. I'll see you next week. Casimir Engine. Reliably mediocre.